0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. When you read the Bible, when you read God's Word, do you find yourself saying, On a frequent basis, maybe even a daily basis, and I hope you're reading the Bible daily. I really hope you're reading it every day of your life. Do you find yourself saying as you read it, I got to do that? I should do that? I should change? I should do that? I don't know any other way to read the Bible profitably. And in the last few weeks, I've been reading Psalms from Psalm, especially Psalm 50 through 80. Now, Psalm 50 that we all looked at together, was it last Sunday or the Sunday before in our small groups, was fantastic. And it begins a whole section of psalms that are just so, so incredible. And uh, these psalms are psalms of people going through hard times and experiencing hard things. And... And yet the constant refrain in these psalms as I was reading it over and over again was to say, God is glorious and I will praise him. And brothers and sisters, I want to say to you, if there is one thing we should do every day of our lives, it's praise God with all our power. What do you think it means to love your God? The Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. It means praise God. And so when we come to worship, I hope, I pray that in weeks and months and years to come, we will be more and more characterized as a people by the word of God. By the word of God, which says praise God. And especially when things are hard. Praise God, shout to his glory, proclaim his name. May we praise God as a church and may we, we honor him by coming to his word and saying, okay, I read that, it means something to me, I must change. And I'm gonna to speak to you about that this morning out of Matthew 14. So will you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Matthew 14 beginning in verse 13 and and continuing through verse 21. Remember, we've just read the account of John the Baptist being beheaded. Herod has heard the news about Jesus and going around and doing things, and so he says, this is John the Baptist risen from the dead. Then it tells how John the Baptist dead, and then it returns not to what Jesus has been doing. It seems like it's still sort of an anachronism. It's sort of out of time because then it goes to what Jesus did back when John the Baptist was killed. and So it's continuing the story from the past and uh, explaining what is going on in light of what had happened to John the Baptist. Now when Jesus, this is the word of God. Now when Jesus heard about John, his cousin remember, he withdrew from there in a boat. To a secluded place, a secluded, which means away, by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and they said, "This place is desolate." And it's described by Matthew as secluded. Now. The disciples say, it's desolate, and the hour is already late, so send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, oh, we have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Ordering the people to sit down on the grass He took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over, the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. There were about 5,000 men who ate besides women and children. The word of the Lord. Amen. Please be seated let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. May we honor it. May we obey it. May we be changed by it. May we listen to it. Heavenly Father, I pray that as I speak about it this morning, it won't be mere human words, but it will come with power by the Holy Spirit and with conviction, Father. My conviction of the truth of it. Our conviction by the truth of it, Father. Help us to be changed, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I hope you want to do what Jesus tells us to do in these verses. And you are sitting and saying, well, I'm not quite sure what Jesus told us to do in these verses. You're saying, what is it that Jesus said to do? And I'm telling you, well, honestly, there should be a little bit of an awareness of what Jesus told you to do in these verses, all right? It really If you listen to these verses, there should be a few things that you say to yourself, yeah. And yet you're going to feel presumption in saying, I'm going to do that. You're going to say, really? Uh, No, 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 it's a different day. And you're going to say, ah, I don't, you know. So are you going to do what Jesus taught in these verses, his teaching? And you're going to say, did you catch the teaching of Jesus in these verses? Do you remember what it was that says that he taught the crowds? Any of you? Well, all right. I'm playing a little bit of a, of a trick on you because it doesn't say that he taught them anything, does it? Now this is the only miracle of Christ <coughs> that is contained in all four of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John all tell the story of the feeding of the 5,000. So we have four angles on this. Matthew who was a disciple, Mark who heard, we think, from Peter, Luke who collected accounts, and John who was again a disciple. Two of them are onlookers or or bystanders. They're actually eyewitnesses to the events. Two of them have heard from eyewitnesses. And and all four of them tell these events of the 5,000, the feeding, the two loaves, the two fish, the five loaves in the same basic way. But they, they add little details, as you will when you are hearing different accounts of the same event. There are different stories that are told, different parts to the story. And, and it's so in the four recountings of this. Now, it's not as apparent in our passage, in Matthew, what Jesus is doing with this crowd in this secluded place and is, is followed there by the, the 5,000 men and more women and children. But if we look at the other three Gospels, we find that there are details filled in that are left obscure in Matthew. If we were to read these verses in Matthew alone, having read nothing else in Matthew, okay? Having read nothing else in Matthew and not having read any of the other Gospels and their accounts of this... We might assume that the entirety of this day that's told here in these verses in chapter 14 of Matthew was spent doing miracles. We read of the day in verse 14. I encourage you to have your Bibles open and looking. When he went ashore, this is Matthew 14, 14. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick and then the next thing we hear is when it was evening the disciples come to him and say hey send them away okay so you might think on the basis of Matthew that there's nothing Jesus does but heal the sick all day and it is clear that the working of miracles the healings that are mentioned by Matthew do comprise a large portion of this day that they were a significant part of the day but of course as we've seen as we've made our way through matthew and as we've read the other gospels we know that when there are crowds following jesus there is always a contingent of that crowd that is seeking a miracle there are always those who want healing but then there's the part of the crowd that says to blind bartimaeus shut up stop shouting we want to hear what he's saying shut up and those guys who are saying be quiet don't bother the master leave him alone Are not there for healing are they because they're telling the people who are there for healing get out of our way we don't need you and we know for instance in the story that i believe it's luke who tells of the of the man lowered through the roof of the house his friends tearing apart the roof to lower their friend before jesus that they couldn't get this man who needed healing in front of jesus because of what was going on and what was taking place included healing because the man was healed right? but they couldn't get this man in front of Jesus to be healed so we have to read this and understand that it's the same with this crowd that there are I'd say tens of thousands okay and I'm going to vacillate between whether I think it's 15 or 20,000 but if it's just 5,000 men you know there's tons more kids and women And so you've got at least 15,000. If you say it's 5,000 men, 5,000 kids, 5,000 women, but I'll bet you anything it's more like 20,000 people. And that in that crowd, there is a minority that is seeking healing, and that minority is dealt with throughout the day. But the vast majority of those who've come, who've gone around the upper shore of the Sea of Galilee to the place where Jesus went, this secluded area, this desolate area, the vast majority of those who've gone there are not people in in need of a healing. How many of you need a healing this morning? If Jesus were in our midst, how many of you would raise your hand and say, I need a healing? Probably a minority, a few of us. I'd say, Jesus, touch my ankle, you know? But it's just an ankle, one ankle, you know? And in the the face of of 10,000 people, I'm probably gonna stay quiet because I can live with my ankle. And you can live with your issues right now. But there would be a few that we would be pressing, usually children, those on in really grave danger. And so those healings take place. The vast majority, however, of those who are following and surrounding Jesus on this occasion, as on every other like this, are not those seeking physical healing, but they are there to hear his teaching. So Jesus teaches, and as he teaches, he heals. His ministry was a ministry of teaching and preaching, and not incidentally, but also not primarily a ministry that included miracles. The miracles, well, they were signs pointing to the truth of the teaching, and so they were powerful, and they were important, and they revealed things about God and His will and His love. And yet they were still secondary in importance to the other events of those days and this day. His teaching was primary. And that's true this day as well. So in the account that we have from Mark of this day, we read when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd. And he felt compassion for them. This is new. It's not mentioned by Matthew. Matthew does speak at another point about Jesus having compassion on the crowd because they were sheep like sheep without a shepherd. But Matthew doesn't say that this time, Mark does. He he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Luke, we read, taking them with him, he withdrew by himself, taking his disciples to a city called Bethsaida. The crowds were aware of this and followed him and welcoming them, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. So you notice Matthew doesn't mention teaching. Only miracles, Mark, remember? We saw a large crowd, felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He began to teach them anything. So Mark is, doesn't mention the healings, only the teaching. Luke mentions, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing. So Luke mentions both and John says, after these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him. Because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick, then Jesus went up on the mountain and he sat down there with his disciples and began to teach. And so John, again, like like Luke, refers to both the teaching and the miracles. So it's clear. Matthew doesn't say if the bulk of the day entailed teaching and healing. They're both significant. They're both such common elements of Christ's ministry that Matthew doesn't feel the need to mention Jesus teaching because he takes it as for granted that his, his readers are going to understand that that's what Jesus was doing. He was teaching. He was teaching, and Mark doesn't mention Jesus healing because he takes it for granted everyone knows oh, when Jesus was teaching he was also healing, but all the gospels mention the ultimate event of this day, the feeding of the five thousand, that caps the day. Every single one of them mentions that miracle so understanding that this is a day of teaching that Jesus began teaching them many things in the words of mark in the words of luke was speaking to them about the kingdom of god we're left with this picture jesus is preaching and teaching and he's saying the kingdom of god is near it's imminent it's it's right here folks <clears throat> he's preaching the kingdom of god that it has come and and it's no new message It's the message that he's preached since the beginning of his ministry. Remember Matthew told us? Remember he said that Jesus came and after being baptized he went and began his public ministry. And he preached repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And we see Jesus preaching this over and over. Repent. For the kingdom of God is, ha- is at hand. Repent. It's the whole of the sermon on that. Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. He goes and he teaches. And then he sends his disciples out. And he says, you go out and preach. Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. Everywhere he goes, it's his message. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. And as he's preaching, repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. He's working miracles. And they're seeing the kingdom of God is truly at hand. It's right here. And so the people are looking on. And they're saying, whoa. Whoa, and the signs that are the miracles point to the imminence of the kingdom of God. And this great miracle that ends the day is a great sign that the kingdom of God is at hand. But the call and the teaching are repent. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And in the book of Acts, when Jesus has gone up into heaven and the disciples have had the Holy Spirit come upon them, on the day of Pentecost, they go out and they preach, repent, because Christ has come. And they're not saying it's at hand. They're saying, He came. He was here. He was was attested to by the Holy Spirit. He performed the miracles and God raised him from the dead. Repent, repent, repent. And so Jesus is teaching repentance. He's preaching repentance. The kingdom of God is here. They're seeing the kingdom of God and they're being called to repent. So we have the crowds, we have the Son of God, we have miracles. At the end of the day, there's a great miracle. And every member of the crowd is involved in it. It's not just the few, the relative few who were healed. We have teaching, tens of thousands of people. And this is a day that is so vital and so beautiful that every single one of the Gospels tells about it. Now you need to listen to Jesus. Jesus. This is written so that you might obey, right? The Bible is given to you to change your life so that you will obey, that you will have faith, the obedience of faith that you will obey and that you will know the power of the kingdom of God in your life. That's why this is in the Bible. It's for the same reason Jesus preached on this day. So that you will know the power of the kingdom in your life, right? That's the purpose of this passage. And you, you must listen to what Jesus says to you on this day. You need to hear it and obey it. You say, well, what is he saying? Well, it's that same message that he preached over and over and over and over again. He's saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Repent, which means Look at yourself, examine your ways, think about your life, recognize the sin, feel the weight of it, turn to God and say, change me, God, change me. I want to change and start off on a new path. Repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. Same reason for repentance. The kingdom of God is at hand. God is here he is watching you, he knows you, he loves you, he's been caring for you, and he is saying, repent, obey me, look at your life. You notice Jesus doesn't say repent of this and that and the other and the other. He says, repent, because you know and I know exactly where we need to repent. We know how deep our sin is. We know how wide, and it's overwhelming. But what a beautiful message to be told by the Son of God. Repent. Repent. Okay, I want to talk to you about why you should obey Jesus. That's what I want to spend the remainder of this sermon on. Why you should obey him. And actually set down, start off on the road of repentance. Why should you listen to Jesus and do what he says? Well, let me begin with a word of warning before I turn to three reasons why you should repent. All right? That word of warning is found in this crowd. These 15 or 20,000 people. Just one crowd on one day. Crowds like this were there day after day with Jesus. This was not an unusual occurrence. What's unusual is that they're way out there, out in the secluded area, out in the desolate area. That's what's unusual, and they don't have any food. But the size, the listening, it's sui generis. It's the exact pattern of everything in Jesus' ministry. So it's a, a large crowd, a typically large crowd. They've come to hear Jesus. And yet, if you do the math in your head, and you must because you're given a brain for a reason when you look at the word of God. If you do the math and it's 5,000 men, not including women and children, you realize and they're out the way north of Israel. I mean, way up there, way out in the middle of nowhere. And if there are that many people way out there, that means, that means everyone in Israel just about heard Jesus over the years that he did this. Everyone got a chance to see a miracle. Everyone, Herod's hearing about it, Pilate's heard everyone. You know, it's just, it's not an uncommon thing. And so you do the math in your head and you say, you know, there's probably 100,000 people or maybe a million people who heard Jesus over those years. But certainly 100,000 because this is 20,000 on one day. And then you think about the end of Jesus' life And you count the number of people who are mentioned being at the cross on the side of Jesus, having at the beginning of the week of Jesus' death, the week that Jesus died, having had crowds follow him into Jerusalem, but man, it's like it's like fog in summer burnt off by the sun by the time of of Thursday and Friday of Holy Week. They're just not there. It's a few women, a few disciples. And after the resurrection and Jesus' return to his disciples, there's more in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, 120, but there's just not these crowds. What does that lead us to say? You're a logical person. You have a brain and you do the math and you think it through. What does it lead you to say? And at the conclusion, isn't it obvious that they didn't follow? They didn't obey. They didn't listen. And, and that's despite these immense, incredible miracles. In spite of er- them following him all the way up to the secluded, barren, remote, desolate area. But they're in the end. They'll walk all the way up there. When it comes time to change and repent. Because it's really not the death of Jesus. That turns people off. It's the call to repent. Right? So they love the teaching. Like Herod loved the teaching of John the Baptist. He liked to hear it. But he didn't like to repent. He saw the power of it. But he didn't want to repent. And these people hear the call. And they go, wow, wow. What teaching. What teaching. Remember, they're there for the teaching. What teaching. What it, but it does not penetrate. It does not change them. That's the sadness of this story and that's the warning I want to begin with. Don't listen to Jesus speaking to you and saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand without obeying. And the vast majority of people do just what this crowd did. They go, yeah, that was a nice cathartic experience. Didn't your heart within you sort of burn? Oh man! Oh, oh. But then they go back, and they go right back to the vomit, like a dog—a dog returning to its vomit. And that's what we are, and that's what we do, and we go right back. So, I think, in a certain way, this is a tremendously sad day. It's so sad. Fifteen to twenty thousand people listening. They're hearing. They're seeking. And seeing the kingdom of heaven. They're seeking the power. They're seeing it come with power. 15,000, 20,000 people fed by the Son of God, both orally in their ears and physically through their mouth, by the Son of God, miraculously, and yet they go home unconvinced, unrepentant. And so I say to you, Listen. Listen to Jesus and repent. There is no excuse for hearing the call of this great Savior to repent and not responding with obedience. You must hear his voice and you must repent. You must. Do not leave one more day go by without deciding that you will obey Jesus by repenting. Do not let one more day in your life go by ignoring the sin that you know is in your life as an offense against God without asking God to forgive you. That is the beginning of repentance and that is the beginning of victory. To acknowledge to God, I am doing this and it's wrong. You know how that sin is blighting your life and I'm speaking to all of you. Speaking to those who have never repented never known the forgiveness of God, never tasted the glory of God's power to make you a new creation in Christ Jesus, and to those of you who have known the power of God's forgiveness, who have seen his power change your life, who also need to repent, who also need to hear again Jesus say, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. You need to be reminded again of the power that transformed you at the outset of your walk with Christ. You... You who say, I'm a Christian and I know about repentance, you need to renew your first love. You need to remember yourself. What Luther says in the first of his 95 theses, when our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Why should you repent? Now I go to my reasons. First, you should listen to Jesus and repent because of the incredible love of Jesus for you. When I say you, I mean all of you. Jesus loves you. Look at him here. He's just heard of the death of his cousin, just learned that John the Baptist, the great man, the great John the Baptist, Jesus says, of men born of women, there's not arisen a greater than John the Baptist. This great man is dead, decapitated at the behest of that little conniving seductress. Salome and her cunning mother Herodias executed by the command of that odious piece of human opal Herod Antipas in order to impress his exalted friends. A terrible, shameful death. The little girl, the little, the little pubescent girl carrying the head of John the Baptist as a trophy to her mother. Look, Mom, I got it. It is disgusting. It is vile. And Jesus is pure. He has nothing to do with such behavior, such evil, such connivance, such seduction. He is pure, and his dear cousin who proclaimed him faithfully and humbly is now dead, and he's just learned it. And in John's death, of course, is the foreshadowing of his own, because just as the forces that put John to death and the method of John's being put to death are odious and repugnant. Nevertheless, John was a sinner. He was not the Savior. He was not the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God and yet the forces that were let loose on John pale in comparison to the forces that are about to be let loose on Jesus. So Jesus hears of this death saddened knowing that this is a prefiguring of his own end he goes to a remote place to get away from it all now 20 years ago my younger brother died and I love my brother Nathan great great brother great man of God he died in his late 30s after several years of illness caused by childhood cystic fibrosis he had CF all his life I decided when Nate died back in 2001 that someday I would return by myself in his memory to the place where we went year after year when we were younger early teens through mid-20s the Boundary Waters canoe area where we went a wilderness area where we had gone camping and canoeing and spent months together there but I was gonna do it I said by myself in memory of Nathan and five years later I did that I went in 2006 first time back to the Boundary Waters since moving to Ohio, 15 years after coming to Ohio, 20 almost. I went back, and I returned, and I went by myself for a week. I wanted to be alone. I didn't want to see anyone. I wanted to think about my brother. Uh, He had been dead five years. He hadn't died the day before. He hadn't just heard. I hadn't just heard about it. I asked myself, How would I have felt if I had arrived up in the Boundary Waters, a remote place, a desolate place, going there to remember my brother? And as I put in at the end of the Gunflint Trail and started out in Seagull Lake, I saw 15,000 people wanting my time. Now, probably you and I would say, whoa, that's cool, right? 15,000 people, that's not Jesus. He had this every day. He went to get away from the 15,000. He went to get away and think. He went to get away and pray. And he finds 15,000 people. 15, 20,000 people. Look at him. He's going here to get away. He's going to a remote place to be by himself with God, to pray, to think. And he finds a crowd. And this is the response of Jesus Christ, this great Savior. Now we... When the people heard that he was going, they followed him on foot from the cities. When he went ashore, verse 14, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. He felt compassion for them. He saw them and he healed their sick. He is the opposite of you and me. He does not live for himself, but for us. He has compassion, not for himself, but for us. He has no self-pity, no self-regard, no thought of self-preservation. Isn't it clear? This is a man who came to earth to die. And he doesn't die once, he dies every day. He dies to himself, his own desires, his own happiness, day after day. He lives and his happiness is found in doing the will of the one who sent him, his Father. And he and his father, they love the men and women that they have created in their image. And that includes you. They love them. And so when he comes to earth, he will die. But he will die and die and die and die to himself. And then he'll die physically, finally. He will die out of love for you. You have no one who cares for you like Jesus. No one. No one who puts your needs ahead of his or her own so unstinningly, so selflessly, so absolutely. You may have a kind mother, a wonderful angel of a mother, but even the kindest, most angelic woman at some point becomes not... (laughs) becomes perturbed, becomes flappable, (laughs) becomes sick of you, right? Puts the kids behind her in her heart and says... I'm going to lose my mind. i got to get out of here for my sanity. She says enough to the children. She bore them. She loves them. And she says to them, get away from me. I've had enough of you. I've had my fill of you. And Jesus never, his compassion never fails. Quite honestly, you should repent today because Jesus may well be the last person, and I refer to him in his human character, which he still retains, the last person living who still has compassion for you. Maybe the last person who still has patience for you. You may have rejected and alienated every single person in the world by your selfishness, stubbornness, unrepentant ways so that no one else has any hope for you at all. No one else is looking out for you. And yet, Jesus has compassion for you when you are absolutely unloved by everyone else. Jesus can and he will heal you. He loves you. He's the son of God who gives life to the dead, who makes sinners righteous by his blood, and so you should run to him in repentance. Run. Because it may well be that there is no one left on your side. At the coming judgment, when the kingdom of God arrives in every bit of power with all the panoply of heaven surrounding it, No one but Jesus is going to count for anything. And if he is for you, you are a citizen of his kingdom. And if he is against you, you are damned. So listen to him today. He's calling you to repent. He's saying to you, leave your sin behind and follow me. Do it. If you don't, there is no compassion left for you. None. Compassion is gone. The future is great. Because there's coming a day when there will be a judgment, and those who have not repented have no mercy left for them. Repent. Change your ways. Turn aside from the path you're on. Recognize that you are a sinner and say, I'm done. I can't. I I have to change. Second, you should listen and repent because when no one sees any hope for you, Jesus still has the power to help you. At the end of this day, the disciples say to Jesus, Hey, look. Been a long day. We're out here in the boonies in the wilderness. There's no food. Send these crowds away so they can make their way home. On their way back, they can buy food to eat in the villages they pass through. In other words, what they're saying actually is, hey, look, Jesus, we're tired. There's an awful lot of them, way too many. Just get rid of them. Come on, let's go. I suspect the claim that they want Jesus to dismiss the crowds so they can, the crowds can go and get food on their way home is not actually true it's kind of disingenuous after all it's late it's a desolate area secluded more than anything I suspect they want to be free of the hassle they're tired they've been with the crowds all day they remember that started out with them trying to get away from the crowds to get free of them and now they're stuck with them what are they supposed to do with night approaching where can they go to supply this crowd even saying Jesus should send them away so they can find food on their own seems a false statement. What towns are they going to pass through that can feed this host? What towns on their path home can hope to feed 15, 20,000 people? If you've ever been on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, even today, you know it's no metropolis. In Matthew's description, this area is desolate, it's the wilderness. And this is a human tidal wave, and it's about to be released on a series of little villages and hamlets all the way down the coast of the Sea of Galilee if the disciples get their way. So Jesus' answer is doubly confounding. First he says, they don't need to go away. They don't need to go away. The disciples go, what? Nightfall's approaching. Tens of thousands of people, what on earth can Jesus mean? They don't need to go away. Disciples think, of course they need to go away. They need to go be sent home. They need to be dismissed. They need to be sent packing. The party is, the disciples say, this party's over. Get them out of here. Jesus, not so much. He's ready to keep going. Not only ready, but willing. Not only willing, but he expects to keep teaching. And then he says something even more confounding. He says, you give them something to eat. You provide for them. This is said to a group of tired men. Men who are ready to pack it in. Men who have no desire to spend more time with the crowds. And Jesus says, You take care of them. Don't send them away. Feed them. You feed them. And you think, Jesus, what are you thinking? Look, when no one else has patience for you any longer, when no one else has any hope left for you, when your mother has given up on you and your father has washed his hands of you, Jesus is still there ready to help offering his hand and he expects his followers to be just like him he tells his disciples to provide for these people and so you have in this kingdom of God that is open to you a church here this is the church it may say I'm sick of helping you Believe me, you've probably said it about others, and I know in my past people said, I'm so tired of David and his sin when I was a kid, when I was in my 20s, and yet they kept helping me. They kept loving me. The church, this church, never grows tired of helping sinners because its Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, never tires of helping sinners. Jesus tells his disciples to provide for the people and that he will not send them away. And the church continues to open its doors to you. You have friends here. You have people here who pray for you. And you've been fired from six jobs, dumped by a dozen boyfriends. Your social worker groans when you call. You have a boss who can't stand to talk to you. He avoids you and he wants to fire you. Your children don't want to see you. Your parents gave up on you years ago and they put you out of the house. And yet, here is the kingdom of God, the body of Christ, the church, the family of God, as it's called in Scripture, still holding out hope for you. When everyone else on earth has given up on you because we reflect Jesus, we have hope, we pray for you we call you over and over again to repent rather than telling you to get out of here. We're sick of you. Feed yourself. We say, no. Jesus has called us to go after the flock. And it's because Jesus tells us to care for his people that we are not to cast them off and precisely because each of us has had Jesus persevere with us, hold out hope for us, show us kindness and love, when we were unrepentant, angry, bitter, and hopeless like you, that we hold out hope for you, and we love you. And we continue to call you to change. Third, you should listen and repent, because neither... Never in the life of Christ nor in the Word of God do we find God or His Son Jesus Christ calling us to do things that He does not empower us to accomplish. So I think it's vital here to understand as those called to live as Jesus lived and to repent daily of our failure to love as He loves, to hope as He hopes, to care for others as He cares, to teach as He taught, that what sounds and feels undoable in our lives that God asks of us if it is from the mouth of God if it is his call or command is eminently doable and this applies across the entire spectrum of obedience and listening to God of obeying Jesus everything that's covered under our obedience to God including the very first act of obedience repentance if he's called you to do it he gives you the power it applies even before you know it, even before you know Jesus. It applies when he, when he first calls you and you say, I don't know you. And He gives you the power, He gives you the strength to say, I will repent. And it applies to those of you who have known and served Him for years. This is a lesson everyone needs to be reminded of over and over and over again. It, it's always in danger of being forgotten. Disciples here need to be reminded. They've been with Jesus years. They need to be reminded and warned of the truth. They need to know it as much as the members of the crowd. It doesn't matter. They've been with Jesus years. They're still prone to deny this most fundamental truth of all the truths Jesus taught. That if he calls you to do something, you can do it because he will give you the power to do it. What is this truth? It's found here in this incredible exchange between Jesus and his disciples at the end of the day. Verse 15, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate, the hour is already late, so send the crowds away, that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, they don't need to go away, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, what? We have five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. You give them something to eat. Imagine being a disciple. The consternation, the anger, the unhappiness. Jesus says to you, you go ahead. Give them something to eat. He knows they came in the the boat with them. He knows what they've got. We have five loaves, Jesus. Two fish, 20,000 people. Five loaves, two fish. Jesus says, you feed them. And he's still saying it to you. Saying you clothe the naked. You help the orphan. You support the widow. You give. Give your money. Give your money to my kingdom. Give. Give your time. Give everything. Give, give, give. Give to my kingdom. Support the church. Support the missionary. Support the person who's going out as an evangelist. Give to the person in need. Give to the guy who's begging on the street corner. Give him not... $3, but $20. Give them the 50 in your wallet. Give, give, give. It's the metronome of God's word. Give, give, serve, serve, give, give, serve, serve, give. You know, it's there. It's everywhere. And you go, I can't do it. I can't keep that beat. Boom, boom, boom. It's too much, Jesus. And you're just like the disciples. Remember, the point here is not food. Food is ancillary here, it's secondary. It's just another form of miracle done this day in service of the teaching. All the miracles are signs, but teaching is eternal life. Don't forget this. I've been speaking about giving and serving. But of course, the most important thing we do and the most hopeless feeling often is to teach people about Jesus and to go into the world and say, Jesus, Jesus is Lord. Jesus reigns. Jesus is king. I'd rather give a 50. Wouldn't you? You know? It's easier to give a 50. But Jesus is not saying give a 50. He's saying, tell the world that there's hope in me. Speak of me. There are finally two reasons to listen to Jesus with absolute repentance. As he says to you as his disciple... You give them something to eat. Remembering that it's not just food. It's not just money. It's the word of God. Feed them the truth. Feed them the truth. First, the reality is that we don't believe Jesus has the power to sustain us physically and materially as we care for the world. We don't. We think if I do it, I'll be broke. If I do it, I'll be killed. If I do it, it'll end badly. And that Is so diminishing of Christ, such blasphemous thinking when we think this way. It was shameful for the disciples to respond Five loaves, Jesus, two fish, five loaves, two fish. They're in the presence of the Son of God who raised the dead. Five loaves, two fish. I have to retire. I can't give this money. Five loaves, two fish. Five loaves. I only have five loaves and two fish. And Jesus is saying, where'd you get those five loaves and two fish? You think you earned them? You think you got them by your own power? I gave you those five loaves and two fish. And I am the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And you think if you give your five loaves and two fish, you're going to starve? You think I won't replenish the coffers? You think I don't have the power to make your offering of five loaves and two fish enough to feed the world? And you sit here and you look at the world and you say, I'm such a dark world, I'm going to sit at home and I'm going to keep... Because it's the only safe way to live. I'm going to keep my candle under, under a basket. Maybe I'll bring it out every once in a while. I'm going to put it back. And boy, I could lose my job. I could lose my livelihood. I could, my anger, the, angry of, of the anger of my family. The anger of my neighbor. Like, I can't do it. It's too costly. And Jesus says, feed them. Feed them. Do it. If Jesus wants the thing done, He will give the power. Do you get this? Do you believe it? Second, we should listen with belief and respond with repentance to Jesus' call to repent, even when it seems impossible, even when he seems to be calling us to do something beyond it, because in particular, when Jesus calls us to repent, there is power in it the call of Jesus to you that's coming to you this morning in my voice. All right? And in a sense, I would say to you that by your sitting here this morning, you are hearing Jesus through me in the same way that the crowd listened. And so therefore, I'd say to you that there is no more important thing you will listen to in your life than this call to repentance that's coming through me from Jesus, saying repent, repent. You know... On this day that Jesus did this thing, things were happening all around the world. We know that around the time of this, of Jesus preaching this, there was a change in the monarchy in Korea, in the Korea Peninsula, and, and King Daru of the Bakchi, uh, of the Bakhchi line took over a famous Korean. How many of you have heard of Daru? Around this time, the The Colosseum, the amphitheater in Rome, burned. Around this time, you you can point to two or three. The the Thracians up in Europe made a treaty with the Romans at the Rhine, which kept the Roman Roman armies from invading Thrace. All around here. How many of you know these things? How many of you care of these things? They don't mean a stinking thing to us today. But Jesus, with this 20,000 people, is the most important preaching, the most important day in these people's lives. They heard the Son of God, and he gave them hope. There's nothing in the world today that compares with the simple truth that Jesus has come to you and said, repent. Nothing. You think people are going to remember E equals MC squared in a 500 years they won't give a rip for Albert Einstein but if the world is around and Jesus tarries the message of repentance that God loves you will still be the single most important thing being said we remember and maybe have memorized you know uh, the words of the of the founders of our country. We hold these truths to be self-evident that every man is created equal, you know? And we say, no. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Long after the U.S. Declaration of Independence and the Continental Congress is forgotten and ground to pieces in the dustbin of history, Jesus' statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life will live. And change lives. So, you think it's impossible to respond to this call to repent. You know your sins. You know your failures. You see no hope. And Jesus here, just as casually, it seems, as, as he does with the disciples, it seems casual even says to you, just do it. Okay, yeah, I understand. Five loaves, two fishes, now go and do it. And you say, but my sin, my years and years of addiction, my years and years, and I can't even get away from it now. Jesus says, yeah, just do it. I understand. Just do it. And you think to yourself, well, that's fine for you to say, Jesus, because you're like the disciples. You're not mired where I am. You aren't me. I can't do what you have called me to do. But you fail to remember that what Jesus commands, he empowers. And that the cleansing that Jesus promises to those who repent and trust him, he has already purchased by his blood. It's not a casual statement. When Jesus commands you to obey him, it's the deepest truth you will ever hear uttered. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. It said simply, just feed them. It's a call to the disciples, repent. Stop thinking about your power and consider mine. It said simply, there's no ostentation in it, matter-of-factly. Just feed them. Just repent. And it's said this way because the question is not whether he has the power to change you, but whether you have the desire to be changed and whether you're willing to obey. Repent. Repent. Jesus is saying it to you here and now. Repent. To all of us. Every day, a day of repentance. Looking to him and being made new. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, this glorious Savior. Who loves us and holds out hope for us and to us when no one else does and who calls us to do that which he has enabled us to do always and now father give us a spirit of repentance change us give us the glory of the new life and the power of the kingdom of God in our lives we pray in Jesus name amen